Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Canada's economy outperforming expectations so far in 2023. Does that mean another interest rate hike is in the cards? Economist David McDonald weighs in with analysis. A federal bill is looming on the sustainable job transition, but Alberta's newly re-elected Premier says the province remains wary of the plan for energy workers. We'll hear from the President of the Alberta Federation of Labour. And some AI leaders warn the technology is threatening humanity itself. Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner tells us why she wants politicians to move faster on artificial intelligence. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio tonight. We begin with the House formally calling for David Johnston to step down as Special Rapporteur on Foreign Interference. Yes, pour 174, 174, contre 150, 150. Je déclare la motion adoptée. Hey, hey. MPs voting for an NDP motion that also demands a public inquiry led by someone with all party support. But Johnston has signaled plans to continue, saying in a statement released after the vote, I deeply respect the right of the House of Commons to express its opinion about my work going forward, but my mandate comes from the government. I have a duty to pursue that work until my mandate is completed. The Prime Minister is maintaining his support for the former Governor-General. Here's Justin Trudeau earlier. Uh, what we're looking for is what is the best path forward, and that's exactly what we entrusted this former Governor-General with, who has a, a, a stellar uh, reputation and level of integrity, to actually look and write this report. And you will notice that the uh, opposition parties uh, are not uh, emphasizing any disagreements with the actual report or conclusions, particularly because they refuse to get uh, the necessary briefings uh, that are being offered to them to be able to understand and accept or disagree with those conclusions. They're continuing to do ad hominem attacks, personal attacks against David Johnston. Canada's economy beat expectations in the first three months of 2023, fueled by exports and household spending. Statistics Canada says first quarter growth equaled an annual growth rate of 3.1%. That's higher than what was forecast and is putting even more focus on the Bank of Canada and next week's interest rate announcement. Well, let's get some insight from David McDonald, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, good to see you again. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So we will talk about the Bank of Canada in a few moments because I know people are thinking about what the interest rate might look like next week. But I want to start with the numbers we saw today from Statistics Canada. What stands out for you? Well, certainly much stronger growth than was anticipated. I mean, the bank was estimating just over 2% growth in this quarter. Uh, we're now up over 3%, so a bit of a surprise on the upside. Uh, this really reflects uh, quite strong growth in January in particular, if we start looking at the monthly figures. Uh, when we look at February, March, or April, the growth is positive in real GDP, but it's not overwhelming. And so this is, in some ways, speaks to what happened in January. 
The other thing I think that's important to point out was that there was a revision to the previous month's data, which was barely positive and now it's barely negative. And so we, we have sort of, you know, the, the, the tail end of 2022 was pretty weak. January was pretty good. And then since then it's been relatively weak again. So talk to me a bit about the specific sectors that we're seeing in, in those numbers today. We know uh, exports up, household spending up, but disposable income down. Housing, yeah. uh, the housing market down in terms of housing investment. What are you noticing? Yeah, so certainly uh, the, one of the big drivers has actually been the public sector. And so this is uh, education, healthcare, and public administration been one of the important drivers there. Um, we're seeing continued strength in professional services, particularly IT, uh, as well as food and accommodation. We're seeing growth uh, in this last quarter. One of the areas that has been consistently affected by higher interest rates and where we have seen big downward movement is retail cons uh, is uh, construction in the um, you know in the homeowner sector. So this is down substantially. It's been going down basically since interest rate increases started. And so insofar as there is a housing crisis and there needs to be more supply, there's certainly plenty of federal and provincial programs that are attempting to encourage more supply uh, on the private side, uh, but that's been utterly overwhelmed by higher interest rates. Uh, this, this is one of the predictable outcomes of higher interest rate is much lower investment uh, in the retail sector um, for construction, uh, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Okay, so let's talk about what this means for the Bank of Canada and for interest rates. Their next announcement coming next week on June the 7th, their overnight target has been at 4.5% since January. Should we be looking for another hike? I wonder whether the labor market uh, and the inflation numbers might be a more important indicator of whether we're going to see that. Uh, certainly on the labor market side, we've continued to see quite low unemployment and good wage growth. Uh, wage growth for the last three months have, has exceeded inflation. It's the first time that's happened basically since uh, inflation popped up about two years ago. Um, and the inflation number from last month at 4.4% was up slightly from the month before, and that's not at all what the bank anticipated. They anticipated that the inflation number would be down around 4% last month. Uh, this was, you know, surprising resilience in increases on rent in particular, as well as the price of grocery store food. Um, and so I wonder if they'd be looking at those figures rather than the GDP figures per se. I think that there's an expectation that inflation is going to drop substantially over the next couple of months, that it'll be back sub 3% by July, uh, in large part as we kick out the big increases from the annual series that we saw around this time last year. I suspect there's going to be a wait and see for another month or two's worth of inflation data um, with the expectation that inflation is going to come down. And if we don't see it come down pretty substantially in the next couple months to around sub 3%, uh, then I think that uh, you know, a rate hike is pretty likely. And so certainly affordability has been a big political topic here in Ottawa. It was a big topic in the last uh, federal budget. What does all that mean, all those numbers you've been telling us mean for people who are concerned about inflation and affordability and the cost of living? What trends should they be looking for over the next three to six months? It does seem that once we kick the very high increases in inflation that happened around this time last year out of the series and, and we move into uh, you know just the last full year, uh, that uh, we will see inflation fall pretty substantially because the big increases weren't happening this year, they were happening last year. That's true for most areas with the exception of rent and the exception of grocery store food prices. Those really kicked up in the fall of 2022 and they are not going to be kicked out of the series 
uh, anytime soon. And so if folks are looking at those areas, uh, you know, affordability in terms of rent, affordability in terms of grocery store food prices, uh, there's no, you know, there's no real changes there. When we look at the housing market generally and attempting to purchase a house, uh, house prices have certainly fallen a bit, but they're actually up a little bit over the last couple months. Um, and there's just, and, and this, the generation of supply is gonna be much lower as a result of these higher interest rates. And so I wonder whether on the affordability, either the rental side or the purchase side of housing, that's gonna remain a substantial issue for some time to come. All right, I wanna finish by taking this back to Parliament Hill. Uh, we did talk to you about the federal budget in March. The government had projected some modest growth at the start of this year, but did say there was a bigger chance of a pronounced slowdown. There was talk of a shallow recession this year, very little growth for the entire year. Do the numbers you're seeing now alter that projection? Does it alter the federal government's fiscal projection and what they are saying about the deficit and the debt? It's not clear that it changes substantially. I mean, the, there was early warning that the first quarter was above expectation and was gonna be reasonably good, and that was relatively well known at the time. That has panned out to be the case, largely because of what happened in January. Um, the growth since January has been pretty weak, um, and those numbers get revised over time. And so the projection wasn't for that deficit, or sorry, for the, for the recession to be in the first quarter, but rather later in the year, second, third, third and fourth quarters perhaps. That's still a very live possibility. Um, in the previous years, there'd been substantial upward revisions on the revenue side, not only at the federal government, but also at the provincial government levels uh, due to much higher corporate income, uh, much higher profits, and so CIT rates, uh, receipts were up. Um, and so higher growth will yield generally higher revenue for the federal government as well as for provincial governments. And so we may see a bit of that, but it's still pretty early in this year to say whether, uh, you know, whether we're gonna see some substantial revisions on the revenue side. Okay, well, keep watching certainly. David McDonald, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. When you have the federal government that it has taken aggressive positions, proposing emissions caps, clean electricity regs that phase in a net zero electricity grid, a just transition of our oil and natural gas workers completely out of work. That I think is, has made people very wary. That was Alberta Premier Danielle Smith last night on Primetime Politics, telling Michael Serapio about her post-election message to the Prime Minister on energy, including the Trudeau government's sustainable jobs plan. The federal government released an interim plan in February, but has yet to table its legislation on transitioning energy workers to a low carbon economy. The Alberta Federation of Labour represents about 175,000 workers in the province, including many in the energy sector. And today, its president is in Ottawa to talk about those transition plans. Gil McGowan, good to see you. Good to see you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So we are awaiting that federal bill on sustainable jobs uh, and the green economy now. You and the AFL have said you want to preserve as many existing jobs as possible. You're also saying that unions need to be at the table when these talks are happening as these programs are being implemented on the shift to a low carbon economy. So what are the specifics that you're hoping to see from the federal government as we await that legislation? 
Well, we in the Alberta Federation of Labor and our uh, unions in uh, energy, uh, energy-related construction and energy-related manufacturing, we've been on something of a mission uh, for the last year and a half. Uh, we've been meeting with the federal government and we've been trying to accomplish a number of things. And first and form foremost, we want the federal government to work with us to help prepare the Alberta economy for the unfolding global energy transition because as you can imagine it's going to have big implications for an energy producing province like Alberta and and we feel very strongly that it's better to prepare for change and prosper rather than stick our heads in the sand and be left behind and so we saw an opportunity with the federal government when they entered into the supply and confidence agreement with the new democrats and one of the 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 points in that agreement was to develop a plan for what they called at the time just transition. So uh, we swooped in there and uh, we said to the federal government, first and foremost, stop using that phrase because it makes our members feel anxious. Uh, but more importantly, we said that the transition has to focus on uh, creating, uh, investing in projects that will create jobs that will generate prosperity. So instead of just um, labor market adjustment for when, you know, when people lose their jobs, we want to make sure that we're creating jobs uh, so that the transition is a smooth one. And second, we, we said very strongly that it's not just about focusing on jobs, you have to have an industrial policy in place uh, because if you just leave it to the market, given the pace of things, investment will happen, but it may not happen in Canada where it needs to, where the workers need it most. So we wanted uh, a commitment to jobs, we wanted an industrial policy, we also asked the government to put their money where their mouth is because this is not a small endeavor, and so we, we're talking billions of dollars. And so uh, we're very pleased with the reception that we received from the federal government. They agreed with us to get rid of that phrase, just transition. They agreed with us to focus on jobs, to embrace industrial policy. And then last summer, the American government, uh, under the Biden administration, they turbocharged the whole debate by investing in a pivot of their own economy through the, uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So billions of dollars put on the table. And in the, f in the last federal budget, our government responded in the way that we were hoping they would by putting $15 billion on the table uh, for transition. Now we're in the second phase, the money's on the table, the commitment is there, uh, and now we're, I'm here in Ottawa to talk with them about the second phase of this project, and that's the Sustainable Jobs Act. And from our perspective, it's really important because uh, what, what it will do once it's introduced, either uh, you know, this, this summer or in the fall, it will provide a framework uh, to develop an all-government approach. So we've got this problem with silos between departments, but because this is such an all-encompassing project that we're engaged in, we need the Labor Department to be talking with the Industry Department, to be talking with Finance, to be talking with Natural Resources. And uh, naturally, bureauc bureaucracies aren't particularly good at uh, you know, collaborating across right. ministries. Right. So, so that's what we want to see in the legislation okay. as a framework for collaboration. Okay, so, you, so you've had these federal talks, but of course, as you know, we're 48 hours after an election in Alberta, the UCP winning another majority of seats, and the Premier, Danielle Smith, She's been pushing back hard yeah. against this sustainable jobs plan. We heard her repeat that message last night on Primetime Politics. Now, you and the AFL, you're connected with the Alberta NDP. You've been very critical of Danielle Smith. Now that the campaign is over, the election is over, I wonder how you're going to make the relationship constructive and further the interests of, of your unions and your workers as you try and get, the, uh, get this job plan going. Yeah, well, I mean, what we heard from Premier Smith 
on election night and what she repeated uh, for you in your interview yesterday, frankly, is not constructive because whether we like it or not, change is coming and it's coming fast. And either we can be prepared for that change or we'll be run over by it. Uh, and on this point, I think Albertans are way ahead of their politicians, both the UCP politicians and uh, the, even the New Democrat politicians. I know that our unions, for example, put together a blueprint for pivoting our economy to new opportunities in the net zero economy. Uh, I know for a fact that the uh, business groups like the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, the Business Council of Alberta, and even the Oil Sands Association called the Pathways Alliance, they're saying very similar things about preparing for change and putting money in to incent uh, investment in big projects that will pivot us towards continued prosperity even as the global economy changes. And to have a government uh, in place right now that's standing in the way of those kind of pragmatic changes and preparations, frankly, it's not good for the Alberta economy, it's not good for Alberta workers. So do you think there's some common ground that Justin Trudeau and Danielle Smith uh, can find here? Because she's yeah. saying she is going to push back as hard as she can if the federal government is putting forward energy policies that she thinks are detrimental to Alberta. Yeah, well, this is the problem, Andrew. Um, the, the UCP in general and Daniel Smith in particular have chosen to politicize the issue of preparation for transition as opposed to approaching it as an issue of the public good. And, uh, you know, we in the labor movement, our counterparts in business, we see that there's opportunities, and in fact, one you know the the, the chair of the Pathways Alliance representing oil uh, oil sands um, uh, companies said before the election that the problem uh, in this transition won't be the loss of jobs; it will be uh, finding enough people to do all the work if we embrace the opportunity to seize these all the opportunities that are presenting themselves as the economy evolves. We in the labor movement say exactly the same thing, and in fact, right now there are billions of dollars of being invested across the country, but also in, in Alberta in, uh, in diversification projects that support uh, a transition. So we're, we're investing in hydrogen, we're investing in carbon capture and sequestration, we're investing in pivoting the oil and gas industry from a reliance on production for fuels to uh, using uh, uh, oil and gas as a, as a, as a feedstock for, for materials. This is the future. And it's the future for investment, it's a, a future for jobs, and uh, it's really not in the interest of the Alberta economy or the Alberta, worker to, or Alberta workers to have a provincial government that's standing in the way of that kind of transformation. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Gil McGowan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Andrew. Well, lately it's been hard to escape phrases like artificial intelligence, chatbot, and chat GPT. Just this week, Chinese leaders are signaling tougher measures in the name of national security, and many of AI's leading architects are warning the technology is a threat to humanity itself. Here in Ottawa, there's been a recent push for more political engagement with a new cross-party caucus on AI and other emerging technology. Alberta Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner co-founded that group earlier this month. Good to have you on to talk about all this. Thanks for having me. So let's start with that open letter I mentioned. It's actually a one-line statement that came out this week. We have industry leaders and some of the pioneers of AI signing on to this, saying that mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. It's some pretty 
existential, serious language we're seeing now in recent weeks. Uh, what do you think about it? Do you agree? Um, I think the fact that these leaders, who are very credible people, put this out should give the global community pause for thought, particularly since many legislators, many like parliaments around the world are very slow to, have been very slow to look at this issue. Um, I also think though for your viewers, it's important to note that there are already societal level impacts that we are seeing due to the emergence of these, these new types of artificial intelligence that are built on something called large language models. This is of course the technology that ChatGPT is based on. Um, it allows the artificial intelligence essentially to be able to parse language among other things. This is a new technology. And those large scale impacts are things like you know, if anybody has a history of text messaging or emails or any sort of online presence, that can be used to train a large language model to be a chat bot that sounds like you, looks like you, talks like you. And you can think about what that means just for, for scamming or for misinformation, the impact that this could have on our democratic system. There's already been reports um, in credible news outlets of suicides being attributed to interactions with these type of chatbots. And the, I think it's really important for people to understand that this isn't just some, we're not just speculating about impacts, these impacts are here. And I don't think any country in the world right now has adequate guardrails in place um, to address these issues. That's not saying that these technologies couldn't have potential benefits for humanity, but we certainly haven't had any guardrails put in place ahead of their deployment to deal with them. And that's why I think it's really important for Canada to take a leadership position on these issues. Well, I want to ask you about the government's response because there is legislation right now before Parliament that does include AI regulations. It's at the industry committee. You've already raised some, some concerns with that. What would you hope to see in a final version of that bill to allay some of the concerns that you're talking about? So the legislation that you're talking about was tabled in June of last year, which is about six months prior to ChatGPT being deployed at large scale internationally. And essentially putting in place and debating AI regulations that were tabled and considered before this major technological disruption. The analogy I'm using, it's, it's like trying to regulate scribes six months after the printing press has been deployed. It's just, it's, it's an outdated modality already. The other concern that I have is that the legislation, though perhaps well-intentioned at the time, pulls the regulatory process out of parliament and sort of into the private, uh, into the private cl closed door environment of the bureaucracy. And I think because of the disruptions that we're having, the fact that it's, this new technology has such a pervasive and wide scale impact on society, we need to have very quick, very nimble, but broad scale consultation with everybody from ethicists uh, to, to people in the media, to innovators in the field themselves. It, the, the, the change in situation that happened last December is so much broader that we, we can't use an outdated piece of legislation. So I'm hoping that there are ways that we can, as parliamentarians, across party lines, agree that we need to do more, that we should be coming up to speed quicker, so that when we are addressing these 
regulations. That's the other thing. The bill only looks at a regulatory framework that would be in place like several years into the future. That's not going to cut it in this scenario, and certainly our global partners are saying that as well too. So we probably do need to go the, back to the drawing board, but that ha needs to happen very quickly. And um, you know, I am working on initiatives with other colleagues to try and enable that to happen. Okay, we have a moment left, and I do want to change tack because you're a Calgary MP. That was a key battleground in this week's Alberta election. The NDP did make some gains, not enough, of course, to defeat the UCP. What's your takeaway on the result and what it means for the country, for federal provincial relations? Um, well, congratulations to Premier Smith. I think she gave a very classy um, acceptance speech where she talked about working with all Albertans regardless of how they voted. And I think that that commitment to build bridges in the best interest to ensure that my province stays strong is a really, really positive thing. And I know she was speaking from the heart when she said that. Um, I think that she also made some very pointed comments about her expectations for the federal Liberal government in terms of some of the legislation that they've imposed on the province as opposed to working collaboratively. And I, I, I think that she's, and what was interesting was, I, I think that that was a pervasive message across the campaign in a variety of different ways. And I think she's very serious about that. So certainly I hope that, you know, the federal Liberal government instead of continuing on this sort of course of just punishing Alberta with legislation that I think is for political gain for them in other parts of the country to see Alberta as an equal participant in confederation and to start treating us that way. And I expect that the Premier will, will continue down that path. Okay, Michelle Rempel-Garner, good to have your perspective on that and on AI. Thanks Thank for you. This. Thanks. Finally tonight, an update on the Mass Casualty Commission and its calls for change, including major RCMP reform and tougher gun laws. A former judge will oversee how governments respond to the MCC's recommendations. Retired Nova Scotia Justice Linda Lee Oland has been named founding chair of a new Progress Monitoring Committee. That committee is meant to ensure accountability from the federal and provincial governments. The MCC delivered its final report two months ago nearly two years after the 2020 mass shooting in Nova Scotia. To all of the victims and survivors, friends and families of the Portapique and Truro shootings, and indeed all Nova Scotians, your pain will never be forgotten. No one should have ever had to endure the loss that you did during those awful two days in April 2020. We know that the wounds are still felt, but by making this next important step, and appointing Justice Oland uh, to champion the work of this committee. Uh, we will be able to see through uh, the final report, address its recommendations, reform the RCMP, restore trust, and build confidence of Canadians in our law enforcement institutions so that this kind of tragedy never occurs again. And this is all for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Andrew Thompson, and for all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.